Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I will be hosting a shoulder-themed panel discussion between all of our recent guests on the shoulder series. So Stig Anderson, Martin Asker, Frederick Johansson, and Informed Performance's own Ben Ashworth to conclude our recent European shoulder series. For the full experience, I suggest you listen to the individual episodes of the guys I just mentioned. But either way, this panel discussion will provide you with the golden insights in whatever order you listen to it. If you haven't checked it out yet, we have launched our digital magazine in January, which you can find at informperformance.com, full of great insights and articles on strength and conditioning, sports medicine, and sports science. By reading the magazine, you will automatically enter our product giveaway competition, where you can win a push velocity training device. As I said, head over to informperformance.com to enjoy that free magazine. In extension to the magazine, we are launching space on our website where you, the listener, can showcase your thoughts and ideas through articles. Informed Performance is all about providing a space for people in our industry to learn from interesting and insightful content consumed in a digestible and efficient way. If you scroll down on the digital magazine page, you'll find out how you can become a contributor to the Informed Performance platform and showcase your work. This episode of the Informed Performance podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance makers of the force frame used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation the force frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances in addition to testing athletes the force frame is also used to maintain and improve strength offering over 130 isometric training protocols and easy to use system the force frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured time after time again to learn more about the force frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to Informed Performance with me, Andy McDonald, and let's head over to our episode with the Shoulder Series panel. Guys, uh, welcome to the Shoulder panel. We'll go through who's on the call uh, in just a second, but based on the group chat, I know I'm going to have my work cut out managing this discussion and uh, I'm probably a rowdy bunch. You've you've all done episodes with Ben recently, but just in case the listeners are tuning into this panel episode first, can you just kind of outline who you are and some background context? If we go to you first, Stig. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, my name is Stig. I'm from uh, Oslo, Norway. I'm a handball guy, physio. Uh, I have a PhD in the prevention of overuse injuries in handball. And on a daily basis, I work in a sports clinic in Oslo, where I mostly see shoulder patients. And uh, regarding sports, it's mostly handball, swimming, a little bit tennis. Cool. If we go to you, Martin. Yeah, I think I'm think i pretty much the Swedish version of, of Stig. Uh, similar background, working with, with mainly handball players and did my PhD on a similar topic of of prevention, um, but more focused on the adolescent players and the youth players. And I now spent half my time in, in research and half the other time is, is clinical work, uh, working mainly with handball players, but some other overhead athletes as well or, or can't contact sports like ice hockey or uh, mainly ice hockey when it comes to contact sport. Cool. And then uh, over to you, Frederick. All right. Thanks for uh, thanks for the invite. Um, I'm uh, into tennis. For ninety nine percent is is tennis. 
since many years uh, would be a combination of physio and uh, strength and conditioning in, uh, in the PhD work we did the uh, shoulders on, on uh, adaptations to uh, like sport specific adaptations. And, but in daily practice, I would say it's more towards performance than, than prevention and injuries. So I work on a daily basis with, with players trying to develop as players, trying to reach the top, so to speak. Then lastly, obviously the listeners know Ben, um, but me and Ben are never on the same podcast at the same time. Uh, ben, obviously the, the listeners know who you are, but what was your kind of uh, roots into having an interest in shoulders? Well, yeah, firstly, just say I'm catching the others up because I'm trying to do my PhD still. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm on a I'm on a distinguished, uh, distinguished panel here full of doctors, doctors of shoulders. Um, but my interests largely came from uh, from rugby initially and then and then working with the judo team uh, in the lead up to uh, the London Olympic Games. And then my career sort of diverted into football, which doesn't tend to be very shoulder heavy. Uh, with regard to my population. So whilst I was doing the day job, I was also um, working with a lot of people who are trying to solve shoulder problems. So that's where my published work came through with looking at force platforms. And since then, that's led to a lot of good conversations with teams from different sports and different organisations across the world. And uh, I'm pretty sure you've all warmed up with, I've seen at least one glass of wine and I'm sure there's a beer amongst the crowd as well while I drink coffee over here, but um, we'll get straight into it. Um, we'll, we'll go into some kind of shoulder and scat-based nuances in a second, um, but in the settings that you all work in, or maybe with the the kind of athletic demograph that you, you support, what are your kind of biggest uh, shoulder management and preparation challenges? And a kind of second part to that question is also, how do you get around it? Uh, I think this might just lay some context early on for the episode. If we go to you first, Stig. Uh, yeah. Mm, the, probably the biggest challenge is to, is to return to play phase in handball. Um, I kind of, uh, if I can get the conversation going with the, with the coach of the team, that's uh, a big uh, advantage. Uh, so how do I come around that? It's just to kind of invite the coaches into the clinic uh, if it's okay by the players. Uh, and why it's a um, uh, difficult phase is basically to get them on board and get the transmission from uh, the last stage of the rehab into the play again as smoothly as possible. So that's probably where I see the, the biggest challenge is the last phase and uh, where I spend more and more time on. Instead of just finishing rehab and then bye-bye, then we kind of make the last phase more smooth between the, the court and the rehab sec- sessions. Over to you, Martin. Yeah, I think, uh, I think a second word, what Stig says, that's, that's the biggest, one of the biggest challenges. Uh, especially when you're working as I do with adolescent players and trying to get them to communicate or us to communicate with with uh, coaches and don't rush into things because it's always the next game that they want to play or the most important game is just around the corner even if it's just 14 or 15 years old. Uh, so I agree that's one of one big challenge. Another big challenge is 
because uh, I see the whole spectrum. I have some players that I work like not on a daily basis, but several days a week I, I meet them. And then you have patients coming in just for a second opinion and then they're off again or, or, or you just have 30 minutes to do the whole assessment and you think there's a lot of other things to do and you just have that short period of time. So you just narrow it down to what's the most important stuff with that player. Uh, so that's also a big difference because they they perhaps don't have the time or the resources or they're not they're located far away uh, so it's hard to get them to do like a full full session all the things that you want to measure uh, that's also like a struggle especially if you you see the other side you have some players that you can work on a daily basis you get you get really comfortable and, and a little bit spoiled and then someone shows up and you have 30 minutes and you want to do all the other stuff and now you have to just narrow it down to what I think is necessary for that player. I can imagine your clinical reasoning improves and you have to, um, like you said, prioritize and narrow things down that well. Yeah, yeah, it, it does. And but also it likes to keep you a little bit empty-handed in the end, like, oh, there was so much more that I would like to do with that or that. Like, so, no, but it, it's... it's it's really, really putting your your clinical reasoning on on the on the spot. How about you, Frederick? Well, no, I think uh, more or less the same as as these guys. But I think I think one um, one challenge that we have is when because uh, I mainly work with adolescent players as well, and that could be that the players and the coach, for that matter, they don't know if the players regarding to the shoulder is sore in the shoulder. Uh, or they have pain in the shoulder, or if there's an injury. So I think one like challenge on a daily basis is to decide. Okay, so you're sore in the shoulder, but you you don't you don't have an injury. And so if if you don't have an injury, then we have to move towards performance. But if if you have an injury, like a tissue damage, a tendon or whatever, then okay, then you you need to work in rehab. But I think today, and, and that could be our fault as a, like practitioners, that sometimes we get too involved too fast. So many players and coaches think they have injuries, but they only have muscle soreness. So, so, so in that sense, I think that's a challenge for us to communicate with the coaches and the players. Because if getting sore in the shoulder after throwing a lot of balls or, or serving a lot is, is normal. But you're not injured, so it, it's good and bad that we have a lot of knowledge these days with research and experience, etc. So I think we we have to be careful how we communicate this to 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 the coaches and the players. Yeah, great point. Um, and then, lastly but not least, Mr. Ashworth with the uh, with the benefit of three answers before him. How about you, mate? Yeah, and it's it's good to hear that. And my world is a bit different now, so I'm not working on a day to day basis with um, solving shoulder problems. But uh, the, the conversations that I'm having with teams now are largely around how do we use the information to help us make those decisions. So whether that's a return to play decision or whether that's a readiness to perform decision, it's making sure that we're, um, we're happy and we trust the measurements that we're using and that we don't just go off those, but we also put them into context. So, you know, provide a, provide a filter provide that human filter and that experience and expertise to enable you to to use trusted information to then guide you. And I think, you know, um, it, it's really important that 
if you're using return to play markers that that you actually use them to make decisions you know there's no point there's no point in measuring something if you're then not going to use that to to inform your programming or your kind of next progression to the next phase and i think that's that's probably the challenge is how people how people think regardless of technology it's how people think about that return to play process um we'll get into some more kind of trickier questions now but the the first of many is you know how would you all prioritize different objective tests based on the sport uh, and it's probably easiest to separate this into different groups you know be that throwing contact and then striking and combat sports um if we go to you first dig yeah so i'll yeah handball that's like a combination of throwing and a not combat but uh, it's collision sport so i'm into both of those uh, um how I prioritize it. Uh, let's say, like my challenge, if it's an overuse injury, it's difficult to replicate the demands of the throwing volume in the clinic. But we kind of try that. Try to simulate uh, a handball session, a handball match, kind of throwing, uh, challenging towards the player, throw X amount, then we kind of to, for example, push-ups, we do different uh, drills, and then we test their isometric strength to see if the the power or the strength uh, decreases during the test. We kind of try to replicate what happens on court in the clinic, which can be challenging, but that would be my first priority when kind of making a decision whether the player is ready to return or not try to replicate the sport uh, in a safe safe uh, environment. And then uh, it's the same with the collision. If it's an instability problem in the shoulder, they need to go back and not only have to be able to throw, they need to be able to take uh, contact. They need to be able to take contact with other players and falling on the ground and so on. And then again, then that's difficult different to replicate like just doing an apprehension on the bench wouldn't replicate what happens during fast movements and so on and that's where uh, i'm uh, like to work by ben with the uh, platforms it's it's much better when you can put challenge to the shoulder in uh, in other positions in end ranges so i like priorities wise it depends on the shoulder problem and it depends on the sport uh, so kind of trying to replicate uh, the testing you do in regards to the sport they're returning to. How about you, Martin? Yeah, uh, I think I'm going to say it's agree every time you ask me. <laughs> uh, but but um, if just a typical example of, of me seeing a handball player versus an ice hockey player. So for the handball player, I would measure like uh, retain, uh, rotational range of motion and and really try to see what happens when we get them into that on the range of motion and uh, with ice hockey player i would probably measure range of motion but wouldn't care as much uh, with the handball players how far they can twist their arm or what it feels like in that position uh, and the same thing with, with strength i'm more concerned about that end range of strength uh, in the cocking phase or in the end and release phase uh, with the handball players compared to ice hockey players while in the ice hockey players it's perhaps more about being able to brace the shoulder, uh, being strong in like in a, in a shooting position where they, where they have the stick, where they shoot. Uh, and I would measure strength in that position compared to an overhead position with the, with the handball player, which would be much 
interesting. So more sports specific, uh, what I would, would actually measure, but, but strength or force uh, and range of motion is probably the same thing, that, uh, this, the stuff that I would measure and prioritize. Um, and if you want to like to expand that, we watch the handball players, how they throw to get like, the rough figure. I wouldn't do that with ice hockey player, obviously. Um, same thing if we look at scapular dyskinesia, uh, whatever we measure there. Uh, I look at it in both players, but it would probably be more interesting in the handball players when they come up in that position and, and looking at where I have the research, it seems to be the overhead athletes that there, if there's something about the scapular dyskinesia, those are probably the players that we would would uh, detect uh, with those tests. Why the ice hockey players, I wouldn't care that much um, the scapular dyskinesia as, as an example. Yeah. Uh, over to you, Frederick. All right. So uh, first of all, I think tennis is is not a collision sport, except for except for the hug in the end. But that's that only apply for men's tennis if you if you watch. Men always hug when they thank, say thank you for the match. Girls never do that. So that's another discussion. So from, a, from that point of view, I think um, tennis is, is about fatigue. It's about fatigueness in, in, in the shoulder. So I think to add something to this discussion, what we often do when players are maybe not in the first phase of rehab, but when they're, we're kind of closing up to the return to play phase, we very often try to push the energy systems. So, so let's say we do a shoulder exercise and they can do the exercise quite nice or maybe even perfect. But then we put them on the bike or on the treadmill and we really push the energy system trying, like Stig was looking into here, uh, replicate the, the demands of the play. And then very often what we see is that they no longer can kind of hold the same position because of fatigueness, not maybe in the shoulder locally, but they have a global fatigueness due to a period of rehab. So for us, it has, if I want to be cocky, I would say it has been a successful way to really work with the energy systems during rehab and maybe focus even more on that than on, on the local shoulder. So, so I think I think that's a very important part to to um, to to make sure that uh, the work is done, because sometimes we have many players going back. The shoulder is okay, but the energy systems is not, and then we have a new injury. So, so I, I think that that could be something to think about. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective on it. Um, how about you, Ben? Yeah, you know, I've not got much more to add to this discussion from the really good points that the other guys have made there. I suppose if I'm thinking about looking at a collision athlete, I'm thinking more about a plyo push-up in my repertoire of tests. Um, and I've, I've had a look at that with some of the NFL people I've spoken to, uh, as well as the rugby. Um, and I think that's a really useful thing when you can perform a plyo push-up, you know, when you're a good enough athlete to do it then you can get some really good meaningful data off that from a you know combat sport perspective actually one of the really nice measures that's being used and has been used in UFC and also in boxing is a like a landmine press um, looking at using something like a gym aware for velocity and then using a kind of velocity based training approach um, to look at what happens under different loads and how that affects 
affect speed in, in striking athletes. So I think those are probably the only the only two extra things I'd add to this conversation. On, on a side note, because obviously velocity-based training is getting bigger and bigger, uh, do any of you other guys utilize it in what you do with the shoulder? Uh, we, we, we started uh, a year and a half ago working with... Um, I don't know if it's, it's if it's allowed to do uh, <laughs> any commercials, but uh, the, we had the gym aware the um, that the gym aware equipment. I, I think it's really nice because you can sometimes you feel that let's say for the shoulder, the shoulder is strong enough, but from a velocity based perspective, the shoulder is not explosive enough. So so when you start to put the pieces together. I think sometimes we're really good in rehab, making sure that the shoulder is strong enough, but tennis and handball and many other sports are explosive. So, so they cannot produce the explosiveness that they are supposed to do when they're going into match. So I think from that perspective, it, for us, it has been really useful to, uh, to work in this approach that, that Ben also is mentioning. So I think, it, I think it's a really nice approach. And I think that, Frederick, the other thing is, you know, we're, we're talking about testing. Um, but if you're taking away from that sort of testing environment and you're just being able to put something on an athlete where you get a measure of what they're already doing as part of their rehab. So, you know, if you're doing a landmine press anyway, if you can stick something on it to give you a score, why not? If you're doing a dumbbell press and you can put a gym aware around a thumb and you want a more explosive action, I think that's, that's a nice way of monitoring without them knowing you're monitoring them. Um, and you can pick up some changes that way rather than sort of a formal test process. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree totally, Ben, because sometimes I think uh, for the athletes, it's, it's more important that they actually see and, and they can feel what's happening. Uh, because sometimes when we test, it gets, like you say, Ben, it gets really formal and that doesn't always help the athlete. They might even underachieve in a, a full test but if we are in training they can actually perform and th- and then they get confident so I, I i think it's a it's a really good pedagogical way to 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 do the training to work with the velocity-based training it's really nice yeah i'll, I'll agree with you guys uh, and i think through the years looking at hamble where, where i come from we've done a lot a lot of tests and a lot of like testing the profile of battery which in the end pretty much doesn't say anything about performance or injury risk, but we just copy pasted other stuff from other sports and just, this is a good test. Just do see how many shins you can do or how much you can do in, in a bench press or, or other tests that pretty much doesn't say anything about the performance. So if we can, as you said, Ben, just measure something that they already do in, in their court or in their sport, I think that's super good. And I think that's the, that's the role where we should, the, the path that we should take there's uh there's lots of good info on uh, on the podcast that you've all done around uh kinetics uh but i'm interested if there's any tips on kinematics um yeah to focus are there are there any orthopedic or objective and subjective tests that you that you like to use when you're looking at the scap yeah objective tests for scapula well <sighs> No, we don't. I don't do any. I've done some strength measures with a handheld uh, dynamometer, but I'm kind of going away from that again. It's it's mostly a subjective assessment. And but what might have changed in my clinic is that I 
put far less energy into it and uh, the difference kind of the the pattern of the scapula it needs to be a big difference because already when it's a handball player I expect there's a different in the dominant arm so it's I don't I wouldn't call it objective it's just like some extra information I spend a little bit time on and it's like Martin said it's if if the scapula play there's a reason why we have a scapula and there's a reason why it should it's logic to think it's important for the shoulder but testing wise it's i think it's difficult and it's difficult to to take the based on the assessment to kind of guide your uh, uh, rehab or guide your return to play so I don't. I spend less time on it, but I haven't completely forgotten it, if I can say it like that. I think I think I'm on the same page as, as Stig here. Uh, I think, but also I think it differs between if you have an injured player in front of you, or you have looking at performance-wise or screening for risk factors, etc. But if you have a player in front of you and you do some of this symptom modification test with the scapular assistance or retraction test and their symptom goes away that could lead you to okay perhaps this place would be helpful if we focus on on the scapula a bit but on the other hand we're probably going to end up with exercises that will work for handball players and that would be exercises that someone would say this is a rotator cuff exercise other would say this is a scapula exercise other would say this is a lower body or kinetic chain exercise. Uh, but the thing that it will tell you or me is that if if I can make this, the symptoms go away with just putting my hands on it, it's probably not that big tissue damage or injury. It's probably something that would have much more better prognosis than, than like it would probably not be a rotator cuff tear or something big damage. Uh, unless I think I'm, I'm really God here and put my hands on and solve the problems like that. Uh, that, I, still, I still use it, but more to to get a sense of like prognosis and, and just to confirm that this is probably not a big big injury. Uh, so yeah, I think I think and my experience now is that if I see like what we call a major scapular dyskinesia, especially if the, we see it during the abduction, during flexion, mostly especially the boys when they go from flexion down back again most of them will have some tilting of the scapula i think that's normal but if we see it in the abduction uh, my experience that when we test strength they will probably be quite weak so we'll end up with trying to strengthen the shoulder anyway so if it's a proxy for for strength for that they haven't loaded shoulder enough i don't know but it's in the end we'll probably end up in the same box uh, so to say uh, when i choose my exercises Oh, I, you know, it's a, it's a tricky, it's a tricky area, I think, because I, to be honest, I don't know what, what to say really, because if, if you're going to make a decision, whether this adolescent player or this player going to play or not, based on his, on her scapular movement, I have not yet seen anyone age 16 or 18 with normal scapular movement uh, in overhead sports. So then we have to take away all players, which is not possible. So 
No, from my point of view, I think it's it's a it is of course important that we always do a thorough clinical exam, etc. We all know that, but from my perspective, I would not spend too much time on the scapular uh, positioning, so to speak. Yeah, the when when I used to work a lot more clinically, I think I used exactly the same. Um, decision-making tools as Martin did with the two kind of, you know, uh, symptom modification tests. And now I just see it as, okay, where are you leaking force? So if you look at someone and you lie them in prone and, you know, you get their arm abducted to 90 degrees and you push down on their elbow, so basically you're asking them to horizontally extend. It's a visual one, this, so sorry about this. Um, but if you do that, what you may see is that the, the scapula comes away from the chest wall. Or you might see that the scapula is nicely connected to the chest wall and you start to rotate through the pelvis. Or you find another compensation and you shorten through that lat on that side and that side of the trunk. So how you create connection or stability to make sure you don't leak force when you try and transfer it across the shoulder girdle is very interesting but i don't think you can ever say that something is entirely scapular driven or glenohumeral driven um you're, you're using quite a sort of a reductionist approach there and, and it goes very similar for load transfer across the pelvis you know you don't get a lower abdominal or hernia or iliopsoas problem without some sort of hip dysfunction and and it's very similar with with another ball and socket and 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 girdle, if you like, that there will always be problems of energy transfer or force transfer across them. I think maybe what we could add is, or or what we could uh, bring to the listeners is, that I think everyone involved in in sports medicine and shoulders, we have. I think we have a great responsibility towards the coaches and the players, n- not putting too much focus on separate movements or separate structures because. In the end, it's 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 a whole. We, we need to work more from a holistic perspective. So so we have to be really careful, I think, when we speak about these things, because otherwise we will end up with subspecialists in every every bone in the body, and, and that that will not make anyone happy in the end. I think so. I think we have a great responsibility actually towards players and coaches. Yeah, very pragmatic point. Um, on some of the podcasts, the importance of the lower limb in transferring force to the upper limb was talked about. And I'm curious to know, do you have any tips, uh, all of you, on how to assess for this uh, force being transmitted from the ground up? Obviously, there's a lot of potential in the lower limb for assessments using force platforms and other tools. Um, and whilst we know about the kinetic chain, how do you guys kind of uh, interpret or assess the transfer of force from the lower body over to the upper body? It's a little bit about what Frederick just said, uh, trying to look at the, the motion they're actually going to perform. And Martin have mentioned video analysis, and that's what I do. I get them to film uh, when they perform a handball throw from the ground, from the and when they jump, and then uh, based on studies, uh, performance-wise, there's some studies looking into uh, what's the most ideal throw in handball. And then based on that, I kind of, that's subjectively, but I watched the video and then I kind of 
uh, it's pick out where the issues are. It might be in a jump shot. It might be that they leak force uh, because they don't get uh, the driving leg under the body. They're not using the trunk in the throw. They are not uh, able to keep the arm in a high position during the throw. So it's more looking at the motion they they are going to perform. Uh, I spend most time on that. Um, I spend less time on breaking it down to, for example, one leg uh, squats, step ups, and those kind of stuff. I used to do that, but I'm I'm more into looking at how they actually perform the motion. Uh, that they are returning to. Do you kind of uh, try to have as many conversations with technical and tactical coaches then with that in mind? So you kind of get that model of thinking in your practice? Yeah. You know, in, in handball, it's not a culture of working on the technique. That's not my experience. Like in tennis or in golf, for example, swimming, it's more, they get easy messages from the coach, keep the arm high. And that's the message they get. So it's loads of potential in uh, working on the throwing technique with handball players. And uh, in my experience, they appreciate getting feedback on it and getting uh, yeah, getting feedback and getting uh, sticks and stones to work with uh, during the throwing motion. It, they're not used to it, in my experience. Yeah, I think I share the same experience as, as Stig in, in handball. It's compared to other sports, as Stig mentioned, and, and I think baseball is is probably the most most technical sport out there in terms of, of how many coaches you have to to teach you how to throw a specific throw, uh, and I think it's also come down to the age of the players that are in front of me, with younger players who perhaps focus more on on the, the throwing motion and what it looks like and trying to teach them to throw in a, in a different way, uh, or what we call like an ideal way. With the older player it's it's a question if we can actually change that or more looking into okay this is the way you throw how can we make that better so in that type of throw or you use your leg a lot let's try to strengthen that a lot so uh, as as steve mentioned i do the the same thing watching at, at videos uh, trying to see if they're there we i'm i'm like have a starting point from what we biomechanically in the lab knows this is uh, the best way to perform a throw and trying to see how much energy leakage you have from that and wh- where that where we should work on uh, on, on that type, type of throw but we also do like measure power output uh, from like counter movement jumps uh, etc but more and more mo- moving into to throwing and especially mentioned one of the types of throws in handball the jump throws which become not very popular but if you manage to do that you you i would say that's that's really a lethal weapon in, in handball uh, the tricky part here is that if you look at the top level players some of them have a, a really weird type of throw that biomechanically we would say like that's not good for your shoulder but performance wise uh, they like they trick every goalkeeper in the world because they can't really participate where the ball is going. So in that case, it's just okay performance versus you're you're gonna bust your shoulder in the next two seasons. Uh, so that's the tricky part, and that 
perform performance will out always like outrun the, the injury part here. So we, then we try to just okay, let's strengthen that as much as possible, trying to protect you from from keep throwing like that. But I think you need to work on these parts, uh, etc. Yeah, I think that's that's what I would add to to what Stig said. Uh, we also like the two other guys here. We do a lot of video analysis. We we try to work with the coaches from that perspective. Uh, from a physical point of view, what what we've been doing for many years that has been working really well, I think, is a backward medicine ball throw. So you you have the medicine ball, and we have. I mean, this is 10 years ago, but we just decided, okay, need to be two kilos for adolescent players, both um, boys and girls. And you're standing backwards to, to a line. And then you're supposed to, with all the force that you can um, create, throw the ball as far as you can. And for us, it has been a really nice test, like a functional test not to decide if the player has strength or not, mobility or not, but just like a functional kind of kinetic chain test to see if they are able to put the pieces together and get the ball to fly. Uh, and uh, we haven't done any studies, just discussions with coaches and with players and experience. So I think it, ha it, it has really been um, a nice way for, for the players and the coaches, really easy, two kilos, backward uh, so you don't crush your backs all the time and uh, just throw it as far as you can and to give uh, listeners um, some guidance if you're 15 and a girl you throw 15 meters if you're a boy you can add maybe two three meters on that so so boys because they're getting stronger stronger otherwise if you can like when you're 11 you throw 11 meters that, that would give you an idea of how much you can throw. So it's, it's really easy. It's not science, it's just experience, but it has added to, to uh, for us in tennis. It, it has been a really nice addition to, to all the testing that's been doing. So uh, maybe that could be something. Yeah, it sounds very simple, but meaningful at the same time. I've got to say, I love that. Um, I used to use that when I had no technology and, and do all sorts of, med ball throws, chest-based, underarm, you know, backward overhead med ball throws and, and just for distance. And it creates that sort of competitive um, competitive sort of spirit within the player as they try and beat their past record. And, and at the same time, you can sit there with your iPhone on whatever app you've got and you can just video it and see actually, is their technique improving? Are they becoming what looks like more efficient? That definitely sits alongside what the other guys were saying about the more high-tech stuff on looking at the kinematics. And I've been really fortunate to speak to people whose job is to look at the kinematics of baseball throwing and baseball pitching and breaking it down using, you know, Vicon or Qualysis Labs and looking at people post-injury and seeing the differences in the timing and sequencing and how that might relate to, you know, if you're not doing if you're not hitting the right angular velocities at the right time, you're playing catch up later on and it's going to affect shoulder and elbow. Um, and that's probably a really nice way of looking at one part of why people get, get injured or potentially get injured. But if you go back to the, my bread and butter, which is the sort of force transfer side of it, I think 
a lot of people measure upper limb force and lower limb force. So they do a CMJ, but they don't, they don't actually connect and see or look at the interaction between the two of them. So working with a baseball team over the last year, they've looked at um, an isometric mid-thigh pull and they've looked at that as a lower limb test of force production. And then they've looked at um, a force, a, a test using force platforms in the upper, upper limb, um, which is <laughs> which is terrible. It's not supposed to be a plug, but that's what they use. They use the ash test. And they saw basically that they broke their athletes into different quadrants. So they had the high lower limb force, low upper limb force, and then they had the opposite. So they had the sort of low lower limb force, high upper limb force. And the way they spoke about that was really nice. And they said, you know, either you're producing so much force from the ground that your shoulder can't cope with it, or in the other way around, you're not, you're not producing enough from the ground and therefore the shoulder's having to deliver it. And I really like that, even though it's quite reductionist still as an approach, when you look at your athletes and you map them against those quadrants, you'll be able to then put them in clusters or in a bucket where you can say, well, maybe we should program more to make the most out of their lower, lower body force production. And actually that's going to improve their, their performance in terms of throwing or maybe we don't need to target that it's good enough it's above what we see with all of our athletes it's you know up a 95th percentile but they do have this lack of ability to produce force in the upper limb and that might be what they need to protect themselves so yeah i think those are the best things that i've looked at in terms of upper body lower body connection and then the bit in the middle is the bit that um isn't definitely isn't published yet and some of the work that's going on is using things like a 1080 to try and objectify this uh, trunk contribution in terms of force production and power measurement. And then some stuff around the single leg, which Stig was alluding to, which is this kind of maybe some of the stuff around this lateral jump. So like a skater jump as well for distance has been associated with, with throwing performance as well. So I think if you're, High tech or low tech, you've got a load of options there from what we've just spoken about. Sort of the elephant in the room question for me a little bit, you know, we've got the the lower limb and then the upper limb. Is there anything specific in the middle place in the trunk that any of you look at that isn't biased towards a, a lower limb force production or an upper limb, but is kind of more focused purely on the trunk? Is there any kind of tests or exercises that you that you assess in that middle in the middle in the middle regions if we call it that i think maybe martin can answer that did you do any testing towards that martin in the risk factor uh, yeah, what, what we do is not purely a trunk test but we test them for like rotational strength and trying to do that diagonal diagonal strength when they're up in that throwing position and see how much they can produce with the, with the uh, diagonal rotation uh, in the trunk and the same thing with as Fredrik mentioned we do backward throws but also side throws with the with medicine ball and also the power output in in rotational from the 1080s uh, as well but it, it again it's it reflects a little bit on on your trunk power and strength and stability but also if you if you're lower limb so if if your lower limb fails you won't get any power output from your trunk so so it's not a purely trunk and i don't think it's it's uh, i don't i don't know if it's possible just to chip out the trunk and, and measure that uh, unless we go back to sucking your your 
belly button and all the stuff that we did <laughs> or at least i did years ago uh, <laughs> or what i was doing uh, so but that's that's uh, where i would say that we focus on the trunk uh, mainly trying to get them out in that throwing position where they're just trying to to uh, uh, bend the, the bow, so to say, when you go out to that position, try to see how much force can you generate in that end of range position. Uh, I just want to ask Martin, that, that that sounds good. How do you how do you actually measure that going from that kind of bow wind up? How do you how do you look at that? We we have them standing like shoulder wide with the shoulders. Uh, and then we'll go back either in the in the cable and see just how much can you how much can you retract? And we measured the, the shoulder and the arm down to the floor and measured the distance from the feet to the to the elbow and the and the uh, and the hand. And then we can either just add weight on, on the cable. We do that and, and trying to normalize that to the, the body weight, so to say. So if you're weighing 80 kilos, we would like you to have at least like eight kilos be able to do that and standardize it in that way. And the same thing. And then we become more and more subjectively, but trying to do a quick motion, throwing motion in that position, filming it in, in uh, uh, slow motion to see, do we see any energy leakage? Is it your shoulder just lacking, uh, you're dropping that position, or is it your your uh, low back that go into really, really low doses, or do you have to twist? Uh, things? So then it becomes more subjective, but I've, I, I kind of like that mix. Uh, so we can add that to that video that we're talking about with, with actually doing their throwing. And then the last question of the day uh, before we kind of close up is, you know, most of the talks uh, focused more around the glenohumeral joint and gave some good info for uh, particularly stability in cuff-based injuries. Um, you know, would your testing procedures differ significantly for ACJ injuries? If so, how? Well... In handball, it will be. It's normally it's not a serious AC joint injury. It's probably a contusion or like grade one, grade two, and uh, then we just give it enough time to uh, kind of the body heals it in itself. And then by testing wise, I would kind of do the same if it's the dominant shoulder, putting the setting the shoulder up to tests. Uh, replicating the sport they're going back to. So like in return play, not any different test AC joint wise, kind of just, then I kind of think of the structure and let the structure heal within the healing time and so on. Yeah, I think, I think same. we don't see that much uh, AC joint injuries in handball and the ones that we see are often not in the in the throwing shoulder, but it's the burst when they land on the floor with the non-dominant arm, so they grab the ball in one arm and then they, they land on the floor. Uh, but often they, they've been able to extract the arm so they land on the elbow, uh, so the elbow takes the hit instead of the AC joint. But uh, I see it more in, in the ice hockey place where you have a direct burst to, to the tip of your shoulder. And uh, I think the difference and the, the only different thing I do is that we test them for like if they're able to take a tackle or, or not. And pain is one thing, but I think that the most the biggest problem is if they're if they're like comfortable of doing that or if or you're still scared or you're you like avoiding those situations because uh, it's not it's 
my experience it is it's painful, but it's mainly that they really think it's discomfortable to to get hit to the shoulder. Uh, and and my experience is that you can have like a grade two or three injury and be able to take a hit without any pain or or discomfortable. Uh, so it's it's more more testing that like stepwise hitting them harder and harder on the shoulder and eventually say, no, this is too too much. Okay. And then we test them again after a couple of weeks and eventually, no, that, that felt fine. Um, so it's, it's, if I look back the years that I've been working with ice hockey players, that I think that's the thing that have changed. I've added that because they kept coming back with like, I got a new hit and now it's, it feels discomfortable again. And they, they, they're skating around thinking about their shoulder instead of uh, thinking about the game. That, that that's the only thing I think I would would, would add. Do you, do you ever just get progressively bigger players to give them a whack to get the sort of yeah. rehab ladder yeah. built up? Or <laughs> yeah, we, we start playing against. So they get a Danish player, and then they move on to Norwegian, and then a Finnish player, and then we have an American, a Canadian, Russian, and then a Swedish player. And if you take a tackle from a Swedish player, then your your turn to play is good. Hundred percent success. Uh, over to you, Frederick. No, I mean, uh, as you all know, tennis is the toughest sport in the world. And uh, so we have some AC joint problems from hugging each other at the net. Mainly from big guys like uh, John Isner is hugging Schwarzman after the game. Apart from that, not so, not so much to add on the discussion. Uh, we do have some AC joints uh, when you get a little bit older. Uh, after career, you can have some AC joint like atrosis and stuff, but that will not really affect your game. So that is one of the injuries together, I think, with the ACL injury that we that we don't see too much in, in tennis. So uh, luckily enough, I think um, we can uh, we, we don't have to put uh, so much focus into that. But I understand it's it, it is a big problem in some sports like Martin was telling here with the ice hockey. It's a really big problem. Uh, so I think you, uh, if you're a shoulder guy and you're into certain sports, of course you need to be really professional and take care of that. But uh, from a tennis point of view, we have uh, very, very few problems with the AC joint. Yeah, I think um, it, it's a it's a joint that lends itself to like less dynamic testing because a lot of the pain and symptoms you get are through you know excessive shear force often. You know, if you think about when we try and strap them up, we try and bring the clavicle down and push the acromium up. So um, in in the years, I've thought about it like, well, OK, we want to test it statically or load it statically. And we also want to hit the muscle groups that, that potentially cross. And there's not much that crosses the AC joint. But if you look at it, it's probably upper traps into deltoid. And so working with some guys in rugby, um, particularly looking at this sort of return to play stuff is they used a reverse trap bar. So they turned a trap bar upside down. And what that does basically, if you can imagine it, is it puts you in a scapular plane. It brings your um, arm up to about 90 degrees or ideally even higher above that. So you're getting some upward rotation. So you're bringing the scapula up towards the, the clavicle and essentially protecting the AC joint. And then without moving, you're just putting an isometric load through it. So there you can build up some time under tension. 
without shear force. It's joint sparing, but you're getting some load in. And, and I think probably some of the most important stuff around AC joints for people who hit each other regularly um, is building some building some bulk. You know, and if you're going to have consistent wax on the AC joint, you're going to be painful. You're going to be inhibited. How are you going to get that loading back into that shoulder to build to build that padding, to build the deltoid and the other sort of muscle cross-sectional areas to protect your joint? So certainly when you're dealing with collision athletes, um, being able to get some load into it in those sort of positions is really important. And I think that's where I would kind of I would kind of go and I'd certainly veer away from testing anything that brings the arm across the body in a loaded position. So you can instantly throw out your Y balance test um, as a, as a probably a test that's going to provoke the AC joint more than, more than many others. Um, yeah. So that's, that's where you've got to sort of think really critically about what you're trying to achieve. And I think the other guys picked up on it really well. The main limiting factor is pain, right? And often, instability is not so important in an AC joint as it would be in a glenohumeral humeral joint. Brilliant. I just want to allow a bit of time. Is there any, do you guys have any questions for each other or um, any kind of commentary based on any of your previous responses during this episode? Yeah, I, I think one thing I'm interested in is because we, we spoke about testing that trunk, um, side of things and and there isn't much out there as we've all agreed in terms of the testing process that are certainly not published um there's probably some good experiences from around the fields but what what do you guys do in terms of just programming for trunk because we all agree that it's important but you know what what do you guys put into your programs to help with that um force transfer from lower to upper body uh, I wouldn't know if it's it's about force transfer, but what we do a lot for core work is front squats. So front squats would for us be a basic exercise that we really try to implement at an early age and then try to progress with the weights as we go forward. So let's say we start maybe at 10, 11, 12, and then we move forward. So front squats would for us be uh, a, a really good exercise, I think. And from, from that, we could also move into these kinds of different landmine presses. I think it's also very good because you, you kind of connect the legs with the core and the shoulder. So I think that's also really nice exercises. And then in the end, we try to go a little bit with like toes to the bar uh, and, and that kind of exercises. So, so we try to we, we don't really measure, we don't really test the core, but in, in my opinion, you will not find a player under 20 with a good enough core. So you, you doesn't matter what test you do, you will always end up with the same answer. Okay, you need to improve. So we just skip the test and we say, okay, you need to improve. And then we try to find ways. So if I would summarize, it would be like front squats, it would be landmine presses and like toes to bar kind of thing to, to implement this. And then go back to the video analysis, try to see have we improved now in real life or not. So that's basically how we we go with this, uh, with, with our players. Uh, probably no one did, but if someone listened to, to my first podcast, we're talking about the melting candle. So this is what the melting candle is all about, you know, to try to keep a good posture throughout the exercises. 
And if, if you're going to let the candle melt down, I think you have a big problem. So you don't really need to test that in an objective setting. You just need to have to visualize that and, and work from that. I think that would be my, my last take home message. There's a really good point there from Frederick. And uh, what I often see in the, in the young players is that they do the like basic stuff, like what they think is like a good core exercise to do, like sit ups and doing the plank. And then they skip a lot of steps in between. And then now we're going to do heavy, like rotational medicine ball throws, uh, which you don't have the technique for. And then we're up with a source, like low back. That's probably the. The, the problem. So I think the, the main thing there is the stepwise, what you can do, like Frederick said, start with like front squats and then move, build on that overhead position with your arm, doing rotational just with, with rubber band and then move progressively into to doing the medicine ball throw. Um, that's that's something that I run into. If I see young players and say, hey, we, we used to do medicine ball throws three times a week and then they show me one and it's like, ah, you know, you, yeah, you throw a medicine ball. Uh, but I think you can can improve a lot. Uh, it's pretty much like what Frederick's saying. It's like you, if you're under 20 years old, uh, you you we don't have to measure them. Uh, we can just suspect that they're 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 not they're not able. They, they need to improve. Uh, and I think that's that's one my experience that they jump into the stuff that they see on on Instagram or YouTube. Like this is the new the new shit. So if we're gonna this is your 30-day throwing program and they jump right into that and, and kids watching it but mainly the coaches like oh this is something new and then they come back like ah it didn't work no so i think that's also like an important message for us that like wh wh where where does this fit in with this this athlete or or the, the kids or the adolescent that i have in front of me uh, and what's what's the goal with these exercises yeah guys i'm really aware of time and uh I really do thank you all for coming on, um, both for having the episodes with Ben individually and also for, for getting together today um, as, a, as a collective to go through some shoulder stuff. Uh, I think the, the listeners will agree there's a lot of, uh, there's some absolute gold amongst this conversation um, and, and from, from different perspectives and viewpoints as well that, that maybe we don't always consider. So yeah, thank you very much for your time and, uh, and your expertise. Um, we've, we've got your social media handles from your individual episodes. So um, in, in the show notes for this episode and the episode description, you'll be able to find all the, the Twitter handles and, and the usuals for, for each of you. But yeah, from me and Ben, thank you very much.